0: This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question why is God good for you? And we're asking this question today to Greg Sheridan. Now, Greg is the Australian newspaper's foreign editor and is one of Australia's most respected and influential analysts of foreign affairs. He is active across television and radio and the author of seven books, including his latest, God is Good For You, A Defense of Christianity in Troubled Times. He's interviewed presidents and prime ministers across the world, and he joins me now. Please welcome, Greg Sheridan.
1: Great to be with you,
0: Robert. Well, Greg, you're foreign editor of The Australian, so have you been anywhere dangerous? Well, uh, I go to the office every day. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, look, I, I never was
1: really a war correspondent. But um, when I was much younger, I was the uh, in 1986 and 87, I was a Washington correspondent. I used to go down to El Salvador and Nicaragua a lot and cover the uh, the civil wars there. And um, I went out to contested areas. But but look, it wasn't really. Uh, Everyone was kind to me, really. Uh, I mean, I think I suffered more from Montezuma's revenge than from, uh, you know, uh, uh, the danger of being blown up by terrorists or anything. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and uh, talking to extremists in Southeast Asia, but extremists in Southeast Asia are always very nice to you <laughs> when you talk to them.
0: Okay. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Greg Sheridan why God is good for you. So, Greg, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about things that are good for you. Uh, Now, do you feel qualified? uh, No, but not being qualified has never been a
1: bar to a journalist, especially (laughs) in your opinion.
0: (laughs) Okay, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one, according to a team of German researchers, how much coffee is good for you? Is it A, none, coffee is very bad for you? Is it B, one cup per week, it's good in moderation? Is it C, one cup a day, a cup a day keeps the cardiologist away? Or is it D, four cups of strong coffee a day?
1: Well, I would go for two cups a day, but I'll say C,
0: one cup a day. Well, you might want to go higher actually, because it's the answer is actually D. Yeah, the answer answer was, the, according to these German researchers, the answer was four cups of strong coffee a day. D. Well, one of research... Even more neurotic and nutty than I am. <laughs> four cups of coffee a day. Anyway, question two. Hopefully, we'll try to get you to pass. NBC News compiled a list of seven seemingly unhealthy things that are actually good for you. Now, which of the following was not on their list? <laughs> Was it A, having a glass or two of wine with dinner? Was it B, nibbling on chocolate? Was it C, Netflix, or was it D, going to church? C. Uh, well, the answer is actually not that. <laughs> I'm afraid. Yeah.
1: I don't really trust NBC. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the answer is actually D, going to church. Apparently, was the one an un- yeah. a seemingly Well, un- that, that's
1: thing. wrong. Their research is
0: wrong. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> well. Perhaps some more study might be good for you, Greg, because uh, you unfortunately got none of our smaller questions right, but anyway, give him a big round of applause <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, Greg, it is popular today that believing that going to church or belief in God is not actually good for you. I mean, it wouldn't make the clickbait list of, uh, of things that are surprisingly good for you. In fact, an Ipsos poll found in 39% of Americans think religion does more harm than good. So why do you think that is? Why don't people think that God is good for them?
1: Rob, let me say the first thing is the only reason to believe in God is because God is true, not because it's good for you in any... any... However, there is overwhelming sociological evidence, some of which I quote in the book, but countless sociological studies which (laughs) shows that the happiest people in the world are the people who have religious belief Mm -hmm. and attend church or a temple or a synagogue or whatever once a week or more yeah. and the, the evidence for this is just absolutely overwhelming mm. the, um, and it's very perplexing evidence for sociologists, most of mm. whom are not, are not believers and, and in fact the people who suffer most when God leaves a community are poor people mm. because they benefit most from the principle of Christian solidarity and churches are typically the last thing which uh, keep a society together, keep a community together.
0: So why isn't this better known then? Is it just a a failure of the journalists, perhaps, or Uh the media?
1: (laughs) Well, look, uh, you know, it's a very well-practised and sensible reflex to blame the media and one I engage in myself quite often. But um, (laughs) So this book is predicated partly on the idea that uh, in Western societies, Western Europe, Australia and New Zealand and North America... Religious belief is falling off a cliff. Yeah. Now, it's not happening in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, has never been more religious and the vast majority of people who have ever lived in the history of humanity were religious. Mm. But in our societies, religious belief is falling off a cliff. Now, the and it's un, just undeniable. There's no sort of definitional way you can get round it or anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the causes for that are very many. There yeah. are very long-term causes and short-term causes. Uh, You know, there's a misinterpretation of of the scientific revolution. There's the the sexual revolution of the 1960s. There's sustained, prolonged affluence, which fools people into thinking that they don't need the mercy of God, whereas every human being needs the mercy of God. Mm -hmm. The culture itself, both the popular culture and the elite culture, have turned against religious belief. Uh, For a very long time, you could live off the moral capital, of centuries of accumulated Christianity. I think now we're becoming so utterly post-Christian that we're becoming kind of pre-Christian. And it's an open question whether a society can really sustain itself without any transcendent belief. Mm. But there are causes that you can trace back over centuries and causes that are very proximate. I think the digital media uh, is very hostile to transcendent belief and meditation.
0: Well, a question that's just come in, uh, sort of connected to that from our text line from our live audience, is why do you think a society can't sustain itself without transcendent belief?
1: Well, it's an open question. I think it probably... the society will go mad, but it's an open question because we've never had a society like this before. The atheist societies we've had in the past have been very ugly. Mm -hmm. Stalin's... uh, This is Eastern Europe, for example. Yeah, Stalin's Soviet Union, Pol Pot's Cambodia. These have been extremely ugly societies but that was atheism imposed from the top down this is a new experiment in human history to become atheist and that's quite different from losing religious practice we've had lots of periods in history where practice has been terrible where and all kinds of evils and wickedness has occurred i'm not arguing in any sense for the past the past of a foreign country with its own villains and weaknesses but To give you one example, I just read a lovely novel called Scarpia by Piers Paul Reid, which deals with Florence in the time of the opera Tosca. And he describes Florence as a corrupt, lovely, uh, hedonistic sort of place. He says, of course, Sybaritism, the worship of pleasure, is not a cause for which a man will readily die. Now, at the most basic level, a society has to be willing to defend itself. And will you defend yourself if you don't believe that there's anything more important than you. Mm. Uh, the other question is, what is the source of morality in the end? If uh, So George Orwell wrote about this very powerfully. He said, when people lose the idea of immortality, what they also lose is the idea of judgement and responsibility. In the end, if when you die, that's it, you're all finished, then you will pay no price, there will be no consequence for you of any evil action you take and if you if if your message to humanity is just follow your own dream well what if your own dream is to kill hundreds of people or to have sex with six-year-olds or something there's no there's no final arbiter on that dream except power Mm. only power so you end up in a Nietzschean world where power
0: Nietzsche Nietzsche was a German philosopher
1: yeah who 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 celebrated the idea that God was dead thought religion was a, a sign of weakness amongst people and
0: thought that, uh, you know, you had to drive to the Superman to mm. exert power. Yeah, the will to power. Yeah. Mm. So, what, so what's the implications of that? You were saying that that leads to a Nietzschean view of the world. So what does that mean? Well, I think eventually society goes mad because there's also a terrible
1: existential boredom. You distract yourself with all kinds of hobbies and pursuits and pleasures. But in the end, you have no purpose. Viktor mm. Frankl also writes very beautifully about this in reflecting, you know, Viktor Frankl was the Holocaust survivor who who worked as a psychiatrist and a, phys- and a physician uh, within the Hitler's death camps. He yeah. was, he was a, a prisoner there. And um, he came to the view that more than anything else, human beings need meaning, and meaning comes from love. Mm. And love needs to be, to some extent, transcendent. And if you had meaning and transcendent purpose and love, you were much more likely to survive Hitler's death camps mm. than if you didn't. Mm. And that even within those death camps, you still had moral choice. Your, mm. your ultimate choice was how you confronted any particular circumstance. But without those
0: mm. without Transcend- those qualities, <laughs> you're in a lot of trouble. So you're arguing, though, that, so that potentially that in, in an atheistic worldview, there is no such thing as these greater, these transcendent qualities. And so, in some respects, <coughs> the that's almost irrational, there's no reason for why we should find meaning, etc. That's right, Um, and let's take one example. Now, a a philosopher
1: whom I cite in the book, the atheist philosopher Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a very fine human being, a very good person, I've got absolute respect for him. He's a very useful philosopher because he takes the ideas of atheism to their logical conclusion. One of the things he argues is that profoundly handicapped children whose parents don't want them should just be done away with, They, they should be killed. And um, he's argued this in a book, and I was talking to him about it on the ABC's Q&A program a few months ago, and I I raised this with him, and he said, yeah, but surely, Greg, what are you saying? Uh, That simply because they're members of our species, they should be kept alive? And uh, he's argued in his book that they have less utility than sentient mammals, you know, gorillas or dogs or or cats. And I said to him, yes, Peter, that's exactly what I'm arguing. Because Mm. they are human beings, they have an irreducible human dignity. Mm. Now, historically, the genesis of that idea of human dignity has been the individual relationship of each person with God. Mm. From
0: Genesis, From Genesis. Yeah.
1: The, the most radically pro-human rights statement in the ancient world by a million miles was the statement in Genesis, God created people in his own image. Mm. The mm. idea that all people, slaves, foreigners, women, everybody, was created in the image of God was a radically pro-human statement in mm. Genesis of the like of which the the ancient world hadn't seen any other. You know, one of the Greek philosophers said, man is the measure of all things. But by man, he meant male, property-owning, heads of families. Mm. He didn't mean women. He didn't
0: mean slaves. Mm. He didn't mean foreigners. So white privilege, effectively. Well, Greek privilege, I suppose, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in his case. Greek male privilege. So you think these are some of the things that we may lose with uh, our culture... Our loss of Christianity in Australia today.
1: Yes, although the book is not really about loss. Uh, the book tries to be a very positive book arguing the case for Christianity from first principles. Mm. so I've got a, a, a chapter about why it's rational to believe in God. and at first, I was going to write that chapter purely as an answer to the new atheists. Mm-hmm. and then I thought this People like is Richard Dawkins and Richard Dawkins and and Christopher Hitchens and so on. And I do, I've got lots of criticisms of them. I think their arguments are kind of silly and once you read them you think, gosh, what's the fuss? That's just nonsense. You know, uh, don't believe in God but I believe in an infinite number of universes to get round the statistical improbability of our universe. Well, that's just ludicrous. There's much more magical thinking required in that religious faith of atheism than there is in belief in God. Mm -hmm. But I actually decided not to write that chapter or the book primarily as an answer, a rebuttal, I don't think that's a good way for Christians to present their arguments. What mm-hmm. I tried to do instead was offer the positive case for belief in God. And I must say the the single piece of writing, and this emerges from a whole lifetime of experience and thinking and everything, but the, the single piece of writing which I found most persuasive and beautiful was Roger Scruton's book, The Soul of the World, where he says the most important rational argument for God... There are a million other arguments you know, the argument from design and the statistical improbability of the universe and so forth, to show that belief is entirely rational. But the most powerful rational evidence he cites is the long human experience of God. And uh, atheists, of course, won't admit that. They, they, they want to rule that evidence out of, out of order. But that
0: is the long empirical testimony of the human race through millennia. Mm. So you mentioned your book there, Greg, God is Good for You, A Defense of Christianity in Troubled Times. You've explained about what you were trying to achieve, but, but what, ex- what inspired it? <clears throat> well, there are a few things, I guess,
1: Robert. One was three years ago, I wrote a, a different book. I went to a lot of writers' festivals and um, all of the books that I saw promoted in all those different writers' festivals, there was not a single one that looked at life from a pro-Christian or a pro-Jewish Point of view, and I thought, now this is really weird because Christianity and Judaism, even if you don't believe in either of them, are absolutely central to our culture and our civilization. There's a paradox here, of course. Christianity is a universal religion, open to every human being, and most Christians today, I would say, are not Westerners. But it is also the case that Western civilization grew up entirely as an outcrop of Christianity, as I argue in one of the chapters on medieval Christianity, and. Um, it just struck me as bizarre that there was nothing about this. And one of the elements of the crisis of belief that we have today is a crisis of knowledge. So I thought there's a real need here in the mainstream secular culture. Now, of course, Australian Christians produce wonderful books and wonderful writing, Mm. but it's never invited into the public (laughs) square. Into the main space, so to speak. So I thought, well, look, let's try. And then, of course, there's a, a marvellous kind of piquant, ironic, humorous idea that, would allow himself to be written about by a journalist it just shows how (laughs) just shows how
0: broad-minded he is now another question's come in from our text line from our live audience here (coughs) so if God really is so good for you then why have his followers the church done so many bad things I think the truth is that
1: being Christian doesn't absolve you of the human condition where every day we battle between good and evil within our own soul I think there's great Wisdom in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's observation that the line between good and evil doesn't run between a group of evil people over there and a group of good people over here. It runs instead down the middle of every human heart. Now, there are are two and a half billion Christians today, and I guess, cumulatively, there have been billions of Christians throughout history... Some of them have done very bad things, there's no doubt. Some of them have done very bad things in the name of the church and in the name of God. Mm. But overwhelmingly, they do good things. I mean, at the first flowering of the AIDS crisis in Australia, the people who were sitting in St Vincent's Hospital in in Sydney, where I'm familiar, lifting the water to the the cups of the mouths of people dying of AIDS were the good nuns of St Vincent's, whose... Love of people was inspired by their love of Christ. The, the Pentecostals are magnificent donors to charity. I went to a Pentecostal church and they'd just collected a whole swag of gifts to give to the children of prisoners in jail. The balance with Christianity is overwhelmingly positive. But Mm -hmm. no one can deny, lots of Christians have done lots of very bad things. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, throughout your book, you share a wide assortment of stories of people right across the country, as you've just shared a couple there. So how has God been good for these people? So the book is in two halves. The first half is the case for Christianity from
1: first principles about belief, about history, a chapter about the Old Testament. Like a lot of Catholics, I'd grown up not reading much scripture, and I absolutely fell in love with the Old Testament while writing this book ruth is the greatest short story ever written just just a magnificent uh, a magnificent short story uh, job of course is the most profound meditation on innocent suffering in the history of human literature and the great consequence you know the lesson is that job is innocent in his suffering and he never gives up on god and god never gives up on him but i must say jonah is perhaps my favorite book of all jonah is like a mel brooks comedy and uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's a fantastic rollicking tale written you'd have to say less in the style of the australian more in the style of the herald sun right? <laughs> and, The Old Old Testament had fantastic sub-editors. They always got the names, they always got the story, they always got to the point, and it's a great story. You know, God tells Jonah to go and preach to the hateful people of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to preach to the people of Nineveh. He wants them to be damned and to to meet the terrible punishment that God has foretold for them. So like a journalist skiving off on assignment, he takes a cruise instead of going to Nineveh and God... (laughs) Plucks him off his cruise, (laughs) flings him into a whale for three days. Very unpleasant for Jonah. So very sulkily, Jonah finally goes up to Nineveh. And he's very much like the producers in the Mel Brooks comedy. He doesn't want this show to succeed. And, oh, woe is me, Nineveh repents and God spares them their punishment. So Jonah goes off and has a terrific sulk for the rest of... uh, Mm -hmm. You know, there's no happy ending for Jonah. He's very miserable. But, of course, the serious message of Jonah is that even in the Old Testament, and the new a- the new atheists particularly mock the God of the Old Testament, but Jonah is just one of countless illustrations in the Old Testament of the universality of God's love in the Old Testament. So I, I read mainly Jewish commentators on the Old Testament because I-, I didn't want to read it always looking for the New Testament, which is the orthodox proper way to read it for a Christian. I mm-hmm. wanted to read it just as a reader. Hmm. And Jonah demonstrates that God is the God of the Ninevites as well as the God of the Israelites. And the Ninevites didn't have to convert to Judaism or anything. They just had to repent from their wickedness. And and God's love was available to them. But um, to get to your question about (laughs) About the people, people, so the second half of the book then deals with Christians and it has two, two elements really. One is the story of particular Christians who I find very inspiring, or Christian movements, which despite the decline in the ambient culture, are doing very well, have signs of great life. Mm -hmm. But there are two chapters where I take serving and former politicians and ask them about their religious belief. I'm not asking them about what effect religious belief had on their politics, which is the only question that ever would be asked about a politician's religious belief. I had no interest in that. I know mm. about their politics. I've been covering them all for forty years. I know their policies very, very well. But I also, because I knew them all uh, personally, you could ask
0: them about their, their faith or their yeah. And a lot of them had spiritual
1: experiences. Had, yeah, because I write about faith issues occasionally. A lot of them had kind of in private conversation mentioned their beliefs to me. So I then, you know, went and morally blackmailed them into doing. The <laughs> interview. They, were, they were all extremely reluctant. Let, let me tell you, getting. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten to do these interviews on their deepest beliefs. The Brexit negotiations were just a walk in the park. (laughs) Compared to this. It was very hard work. But all of them, all 14 of them, rewarded me with the depth and texture and, in a sense, even the magnificence of their inner lives, which they generally keep hidden. Here are the most brilliant and powerful people in our society who have run our country. And guess what? they have these profound Christian beliefs. So maybe these beliefs are not so silly after all, because the culture is trying all the time to bluff Christians out of their beliefs, to tell them that their beliefs are are foolish and unreasonable and nobody of consequence Mm. uh, uh, holds them. But all all of these people who've led our nation, uh, they all hold profound Christian
0: beliefs. We're asking Greg Sheridan today's big question, why is God good for you? And the Bible itself gives some reasons. In the Old Testament book of Micah, the prophet Micah writes in chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, Greg, you quote this verse a couple of times in your book. Now, this passage is from the Old Testament, which, as you've just said, some have described as this, the gold of the Old Testament, you know, as, for example, a petty, vindictive, rageaholic obsessed with loyalty over morality. So how could walking with the God of the Old Testament possibly be good for you? So Richard Dawkins in particular, the, the most objectionable of the
1: new atheists, so I try not to criticise people personally in this book, uh, I didn't want it to be a book of sharp elbows, but Richard Dawkins' book, really, The God Delusion, is just so dishonest. <laughs> so dishonest. I mean, he reads the Bible as a fundamentalist literalist in the way that no, almost no Christian and almost no Jew reads the Bible at all. And he says, well, if you don't believe in the literal interpretation of Genesis, you're obviously not a religious believer. He then defames the God of the Old Testament says that he's homophobic, genocidal, authoritarian, misogynistic, and so on. And indeed, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former Chief Rabbi of the Commonwealth, responded to this by accusing Dawkins of anti-Semitism. But in fact, you find in the Old Testament a, a lovely melody always between the universal and the specific. And in the end, the universal always transcends the specific. It's a story of the gradual disclosure of God to the Jewish people and the gradual discovery of God by the Jewish people. The uh, command to love universally, uh, there's another passage I quote, love the stranger for you you were strangers in Egypt. And a a version of that is repeated 37 times in the Old Testament. Now, the passage of Micah that I used, the version of that verse that I used was, what I want, want from you, O mortal, act justly, love tenderly, and walk humbly with your God, which I think is the greatest injunction
0: to the search for decency in, in all of our literature. So what do you think the impact of that search for decency, et cetera, has been, or the impact of that I think it's been overwhelmingly
1: positive. And, um, you know, there's another chapter I have what, have, what Did We Ever Get From Christianity?, where I argue that everything we like about modern liberalism and about our own political culture, everything that is decent emerges directly from the Jewish and the Christian traditions. So, for example... The early Christian assertion that every human being had a divine relationship with God, which became the doctrine of the soul, meant that slaves could not be abused by their masters. Now the Christians were powerless in the ancient world, they couldn't abolish slavery, but it did mean that masters could not use their slaves in the way they had before. It similarly gave a new independence to women because there was an authority beyond the father Uh, the father had to conform to the external authority of Christianity. And so there was a a court of appeal, as it were, for women. Christians, unlike everyone else in the ancient world, didn't slaughter their female babies. So Christian families had lots more girls than than, uh, non-Christian families. And a a scholarised site thinks this was one of the key reasons for the rapid expansion of Christianity. And everything that we like, human rights human dignity, the idea of the individual. I mean, before Christianity, people were predominantly members of a family or a clan. With Christianity, they were, they were individuals in an individual relationship with God. So I think the, the injunction to love your neighbour, uh, act, justly, act justly, love,
0: love tenderly, and, love
1: walk tenderly and walk humbly with your God, but this is, of course, characteristic of the Old Testament all, all the way through. I mean, the Jewish tradition developed a similar ethical, uh, you know, and uh, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition are different, but they really contribute to, a, to the same ethical pool. And everything that we like, really, about human rights
0: comes out of that mm. tradition. There's one more question here from our text line from our live audience which I'll just feed in. So how do we untangle Western civilization and Christianity? It sounds imperialist to say that Western civilization is good for you. The things
1: that we like which are universal such as human rights and the idea of the individual and indeed loving your neighbour as yourself, these come from Christianity. But none of that is to wipe out all the sins of western civilization or all the sins of christianity none of that is to be imperialist you don't if you're a christian in india you don't have to sign up to the british parliament or something you can express christianity in, in an in indian india. way yeah.
0: yeah yeah so greg
1: why is god good for you god is good for you because god is true and there is a deep part of humanity which always wants to respond to that truth There is another part of humanity which always wants to rebel against that truth. And in the end, human beings seek the truth and they seek God. And if they deny that, they're denying an essential part of themselves. And if you lose God, you lose something of humanity. And if you embrace God, you embrace your own humanity more fully than you possibly could in any other way.
0: Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question. Why is God good for you? From Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Greg Sheridan. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Hi, everyone. Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bigger Questions. We hope you enjoy the show. And we always love hearing from you our podcast listeners so please let us know what you love about the show how has this podcast impacted your own thinking or conversations about the bigger questions of life we really want bigger questions to create bigger and better conversations in our world now you can get in touch through our website biggerquestions.org or you can send us a message on our facebook page we'd love to hear the big questions that you're asking and who you're sharing the podcast with now As you may know, Bigger Questions is broadcast on a number of radio stations around Australia. And this week we're excited to add our sixth station who are broadcasting the show, Way FM in Launceston. Launceston's Positive Alternative will now be broadcasting the show from 7pm on Sunday nights. So welcome aboard and if you're in Launceston, check out the show and check out the station. It's great that they can join us. Now, if you think we need more quality conversations and you want to invest in bigger thinking, so why not support us on Patreon? For as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better discussions around the bigger questions of life. So go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions and you can sign up there. Anyway, well, thanks again for listening. We hope to hear from you soon and tune in again next week where we hear from two scientists, Dr. and Dr. Smith, about UFOs and aliens, is the truth still out there? It's a conversation that's out of this world. Thanks for listening and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.